0: You're tuned into to More Living with Jim Brogan, broadcast live from the Brogan Financial Studios at News Talk 98.7, where old-fashioned values, expert knowledge, and genuine understanding come together to give you the retirement straight talk you deserve. Jim's a former National Advisor of the Year recipient and a financial educator, and he's here today to talk about how you can live out the best years of your life. Jim and the Brogan Financial Team have been helping retirees and pre-retirees across the Southeast for over 20 years in their pursuit of financial independence. You can reach them during the week at 865-862-6800. So sit back, relax, and get ready to learn, because More Living with Jim Brogan starts now.
1: Happy Saturday, East Tennessee, and welcome to More Living with Jim Brogan, where it's all about living the best years of your life your way. This is News Talk 987 WOKI. And today we're going to talk about a topic I think is very, very important and it has really come to the forefront, especially since the pandemic. And that is mental disorders and mental challenges, mental illnesses. You know, they're among the most common health conditions in the United States. More than 50% will be diagnosed with some sort of a mental disorder or mental illness at some point in their lifetime. 50%, that's extraordinary. Seeking treatment and supporting loved ones who are experiencing a mental health crisis can lead to more questions than answers. How can we support our friends, our loved ones, and even ourselves if we are experiencing depression or some other type of mental disorder? And what about our young people today as we're seeing more and more issues even with young people. Today I'm joined by PJ Alexander. PJ is a licensed therapist and holds specialty certifications in grief counseling and is a clinic, excuse me, a clinical certified trauma professional. PJ has been working as a therapist for more than 18 years and leads the Knoxville Suicide Griever Support Group. Good morning, PJ. Welcome to More Living.
2: Good morning. Uh, thank you for having us on the show today.
1: Yes, PJ, give us a little bit about your background. When, uh, you've been doing this for close to 20 years. What led you to this field? T- tell us a little bit about your journey.
2: So um, actually, I've been working in this field for about 30 years and uh, actually just always had an interest in um, mental health and uh, started out actually a long, long time ago in nursing school. So. One of the first times I was assigned to an individual that was actually an end-stage um, lung cancer. And so uh, that kind of started um, my interest in just really what being with someone that was going through that. The individual had no family members. And um, so I ended up just staying throughout the night um, with that individual just in a supportive care fashion. And... I remember after the event that my nursing instructor took me aside and she said, you know, I really think that um, you would make a great therapist, you know? (laughs) And so that was a long, long time ago and and that's kind of how it all started. And then was able to, you know, get my degree and um, have then been just very interested in the field of thanatology and traumatology. So I've gone in with some specialty certifications there.
1: So over a 30 year career in this in this field have you seen a shift in how we view mental illness and mental disorder or how we approach it
2: yes i I think we continue to be invested in raising awareness um, I do think that oftentimes individuals that I see and I definitely hear this in a uh, Individuals who have lost lost someone to suicide, that there still seems to be a stigma, and so um, you know we're we're a very stoic culture. If you look at how our you know macro system operates, it's we are accustomed to white knuckling, <laughs> you know, just push through it, just try harder, just do more, um, and so I think when someone, you know, is experiencing something like you know, anxiety or depression, it becomes harder for them to fulfill what maybe they would have been able to do, function in the same, um, you know, to the same degree that they had been able to. And so we'll allocate that timeline for a while, but then most people feel like, I've got to hurry up and get over this. So, you know, we know that about two-thirds of our people struggling with depression don't even seek help. So I think some of that, you know, we talk about access to mental health care. There's so many issues that play into that. But also, you know, people that worry about, can I get that time off for work for a while to get a handle on this? Or, you know, what will happen if I can't achieve at the previous level of achievement? And so I think there's so many layers to it um, that are still wrapped up in that.
1: You know, I think that uh, we – we all have mood swings we all deal with um, sometimes some of us deal with seasonal issues where we get a little bit down or depressed and I don't mean to use the word lightly Um, when you use the terminology depression or depressed what is the definition of clinical depression
2: well, the, the clinical definition is that it's a mood disorder that will cause a persistent feeling of sadness or loss of uh, loss of interest. So it, it not only affects how you feel and think, but also it affects um, just a variety of emotional uh, layers that we have and also will have a physical component to it. It's more than just the blues or like what you're talking about, Jim, when you're talking about... Yes, we all have ups and downs or like it's a very more people might be aware of like the seasonal affective disorder that, you know, that people encounter when we have, you know, uh, darker hours of the day more than we have lighter hours of the day. So the the differences I think that are important to recognize, too, is that it's not about someone not trying hard enough that the feeling of um, that they have because it also involves sleep disturbances, we know we know that that can reduce our coping resiliency, the way that we, um, even our good problem-solving skills, we can have some agitation or restlessness with that. Uh, we can have the mark. I think the one thing that's really important to recognize here is where people can really start getting in trouble with depression is it really starts affecting your self-worth. So there's feelings of worthlessness or guilt, kind of like fixating on past failures, a lot of self-blame. Uh, when you listen to the self-talk, when someone comes in and they're talking about, you know, they're very, very sad, The demeanor is very sad, very heavy. Um, and then when they start talking about themselves, you can just hear just that, you know, just harsh self-talk that they have. They might have trouble thinking, concentrating, making decisions, remembering things. So those things also can affect their ability to complete a task, to to uh, perform at the same level in the workplace. And uh, and there's a lot of um, there can be a lot of physical or somatic experiences that go along with that. Just the exhaustion, the fatigue, muscle aches. Again, like I said, inability to sleep, affecting your appetite. And then we get really concerned when people get to the point that they're starting to have suicidal ideation, which goes which does go along with depression. Not all depressions. If we look at the clinical data on it, not everybody. <clears throat> we know that not everybody that has depression completes the suicide, but we know that there's a strong correlation there. Yeah, but we there, there's. Felt-
1: Yeah, there's just so many layers here and and we're going to get into all of this or a lot of this. uh, But you you mentioned a minute ago about, you know, the stigma. It it seems like the last 20 or 30, the last 10, 20 years, the stigma, we've come a long way with that uh, issue, but it's still there somewhat. How do you think we can continue to combat that?
2: Well, one of the things that I hope helps is through uh, education and awareness raising about the issue of, of mental mental illness. And, you know, here in Tennessee, we have a great organization. Of course, uh, the Mental Health Association of East Tennessee, they have great programs that go into the school, uh, TSTN, Tennessee Suicide Prevention Network, and of course, AFST. Um, we, all, all of these organizations that are trying um, to make sure that we're educating uh, the general public, but also in the, in the school system. I know that with AFSP, there's a training for teachers, parents, and even the teams, and it's called More Than Sad. So I keep hoping that through awareness-raising efforts and education that we can help with this. Like you said, Jim, at the beginning of the show, more than 50% will be diagnosed with some kind of mental disorder throughout their lifetime. We know that sometimes those can be situational. We know sometimes that, you know, there can, there can be a lot of trauma involved in a person's life or a lot of loss, or, you know, we talk about postpartum depression. So there's so many things that could come up that could be situational, but if we just get the information out there that this isn't about, there's something, you know, wrong with you. Like you've got some kind of, You know, someone that we shouldn't be around. But this is like, no, this is you and me. This is this is just this is a tough world to live in, period. And so that's why our communities, uh, supportive communities, are so important because it's it's tough to do this life alone. So it's important that we have not only the education, the awareness, wonderful programs around us. Uh, We have good therapists and good um, you know mental health clinicians out there, but but also, just you know, the, the the smaller system of your life and your microsystem of who's there for you for support—is it your community? Is it your church? Is it your family? Is it your friends? You know, so just also helping people understand what do I do to take care of myself in these situations.
1: We're visiting with P. J. Alexander. It is an astounding statistic that more than fifty-five 50, zero. More than 50% of us will be diagnosed with some kind of mental disorder at some point in our lives. When we come back, I want to talk about how the pandemic, you know, it's become a, a much more prevalent and discussed and much more in our viewpoint with what, you know, some of the mental challenges that have happened with the pandemic. So I want to talk to PJ about some of the ways these things have evolved and what some of those resources are that are out there. So stay with us. You're listening to More Living with Jim Brogan here on News Talk 98.7 WOKI.
0: Welcome back to Newstalk 98.7's Brogan Financial Studios, where Jim Brogan is coming to you live with important news and advice to help you achieve your dream retirement. Get ready to learn and live. Here's your host, Jim Brogan.
1: Welcome back to More Living here on Newstalk 98.7 WOKI. I'm Jim Brogan, your host, on this uh, Saturday, and we're visiting with P.J. Alexander, uh, she is a therapist that deals with mental disorders, been in, the, been in that uh, line of work for, I think she she said, about 30 years. And, you know, PJ, this is something that has become more discussed, especially since the pandemic. The pandemic was a tough experience for most people. And even though we're no longer isolated at homes, uh, prob- people people are facing additional problems. They're just numerous in many different areas. Lost income, concerns over inflation, a lost sense of normalcy. According to the National Alliance on Mental Illness, one in five U.S. adults experience mental illness each year. So what have you seen over the past few years with the pandemic? Have things gotten worse from the clinical side? We hear hear it being talked about you're in it uh have you seen an increase in issues
2: uh yes and you know i think that we all saw during the pandemic that more i know i was receiving almost double the number of requests for uh mental health counseling and in the beginning we you know had to go to telehealth because many of us were not able you know we were all isolating and so sure. The statistics um, showed us too that we had, um, you know, just there was a, like a global prevalence of anxiety and depression. There was an increase of about 25%, I believe. And now it's been, uh, you know, the statistics have said that, you know, like you said earlier, five people have mental health issues, but during the pandemic that doubled. So many so of roughly, the people- So
1: roughly, just to kind of clarify, so roughly 40% of Americans, at some point during the pandemic were having issues
2: well the statistic and i don't want to misquote it but from the world health organization said that it was an increase of 25 percent of okay, people gotcha. that yeah and you know the the thing when you were asked about you know what was caused what was bringing people in were some of the things that you identified that um you know that people there was it was such a, a a frightening period during the height of it, uh, we saw illness like we had never seen. People were the the grief was was just massive, and family members, many people that I saw, um, they had a death through COVID with just more than one family member. Um, we had job loss. Uh, people had inability to connect with their community, like I was speaking a minute ago about the importance of community. So churches had to close down, schools were closed down, Um, most of our, you know, people's opportunity to have any kind of social engagement was limited. And so all of those things, we really, I think, came to a new appreciation of just how important community is to one another, that we be together and and be able to, you know, kind of walk through life together and enjoy time together. So that the, has I think I was gonna say I think about the children too, who lost almost two years of their what they were accustomed to, normal socialization and routines. Yeah, and I so think, now I
1: think what we've seen with the kids, I think twenty years from now we're gonna look back at, at just a uh, you know, what was just a horrible thing in our, you know, with the way, you know, with what children have had to deal with. Um, mm-hmm. But you, you mentioned the isolation, and you mentioned this, the, the the importance of community. And unfortunately, when people have mental illness, and especially depression, it's, it seems like it can lead to isolating themselves from their friends and family. What kinds of things can people do to ward off feelings of loneliness and isolation?
2: You know, the, you're right on so many people with depression um, do tend to isolate. And so they're often not going to be able to kind of push through in some of those early initial stages of, you know, their depression that kind of limits their, even their physical energy to want to partake and be a, a part of something. And also we have to remember the, you know, the impact of the whole, you know, limbic system where there's just such hypersensitivity to even sound, noise, et cetera. So sometimes we talk about, you know, what what can you do to still feel that you have a, a part of your participating in? So some, there have been some, um, some of my clients have been pretty successful in finding some online groups that have been helpful with those that are experiencing similar kinds of issues. So they feel that there's some support. Um, You know, we know there's a lot of live streaming as far as like even some of the other events that go on in the community. Some of those things are still going on. So at least, you know, they feel that they can still partake, even if they feel like they don't want to participate. So I think that has been somewhat helpful. And uh, just I think the opportunity we have to also just be connected through, you know, things like FaceTime and Things like that that many people have taken advantage of that as well as a way to stay connected. But yeah, not we've gotten even
1: we've gotten so much more comfortable with utilizing those types of technologies yeah. that are that are that are good ways to stay connected. You know, PJ is a financial advisor. I know worrying about our finances can be stressful. Do you mm-hmm. notice what type of connection is there between financial security and mental health decline?
2: Well, I bet you know that better than me, Jim. But. <laughs> From what you see every day, but I couldn't quote you the statistics on it, but I know it has it has really had a tremendous burden on many of our you know citizens and one of the things that we think about with financial insecurity is if I've lost my job or I'm not working full time hours, I've lost my insurance, and so that's where we begin to talk about the real issues around access, like we're talking about access not only to our health care, but also mental health care. if I don't have insurance, if I don't have a way to pay, I'm not going to be able to seek help and so i that worries me tremendously as a mental health professional because some people just cannot you know afford all mental health therapists except insurance. so we kind of get in this situation with financial insecurity and not having the kind of funds that we need. For people that do need help, so it and then it trickles down of course into the family. how do I take care of you know um, my children? how do I pay for groceries? how do I pay for gas? you know how do I keep the so it has a tremendous burden on mental health
1: yeah, and then when you see a financial barrier like that, and as you mentioned earlier, and I thought it was spot on, we have a stoic culture and so Mm. you know we tend to want to just suck it up and move forward and then when you combine the potential financial barrier with lack of insurance or whatever it can be intimidating one of the things that I do see and that I've talked about on this program a good bit is some of the mental challenges of going from working full-time to being retired because Mm. you know when we're working when we retire, we lose initially that routine. We also have the potential to lose a lot of our social network and social structure, social support with the people we see at work. Uh, how often do you see in your clinic uh, issues with people with the the emotional side of that transition?
2: Uh, frequently, because there's a, you know, I think sometimes that there's a, Erroneous expectations that people hold, and again, it's a, um, it's really, <laughs> a, you know, a spouse that like, oh, retire and you're gonna the golden years and all the terms that they use, and this is going to be a wonderful time of, now you've poured in so much that you're just going to sit back. But what everybody forgets to tell you is that we are creatures of habit, and so we we look to adaptation theory that helps us with that too. That, you know, that we've had this new shocking thing of going from. You know, you know, working and being gone from home maybe 8 to 12 hours a day, and now we're going to be home and we're supposed to be fulfilled. And so I think it's, and, and again, this is right up your alley, but it's really important to plan for that from the social-emotional side of it, too. So how are you going to stay involved? And, you know, um, I think we have tremendous opportunities for people to stay involved in community through volunteering um, that's one of the rich ways. And then also, what are you going to do to keep your physical? <laughs> you know, are you going to be involved in something that will keep you involved and engaged with physical activity, which is so essential and so important, especially as you're aging? And so those are just, you know, two of the main areas and how are you get to maintain those connections with others?
1: <clears throat> yeah, I think I, I talk a lot about the routine that, that when you get ready to retire – you know, you really should establish, especially for that first year, a couple things every week that you do for routine. Uh, I can tell you, PJ, I'm 53. I just turned 53 years old. Uh, my wife told me that she will never let me fully retire. (laughs) She (laughs) doesn't want me around the house that much. So when I'm 73, I'm sure I'll still be working some, probably still doing this radio show. Um, Tell you what, we're going to get to our next break, and when we come back, I just want to talk about some of the resources that are available in Knoxville. Also, uh, later in the show, uh, in the last segment, we're going to do our dollars and cents segment. We're going to talk about the emotion of investing, and and it's very applicable in this challenging time we're in uh, with the midst of the bear market we're in in the stock market. So stay with us as we visit with P.J. Alexander and talk about mental disorders. This is More Living with Jim Brogan on News Talk 98.7 WOKI.
0: Welcome back to News Talk 98.7's Brogan Financial Studios, where Jim Brogan is coming to you live with important news and advice to help you achieve your dream retirement. Get ready to learn and live. Here's your host, Jim Brogan.
1: Welcome back to More Living with Jim Brogan, where it's all about living the best years of your life your way. This is News Talk 98.7 WOKI. We're with you every Saturday, 9 to 10 a.m. and again, 3 to 4 p.m., I will tell you, my next class, we're we're currently in the middle of my UT class, the class over at the University of Tennessee's personal and professional development. Uh, My next class is Thrive Financially in Retirement. It's at Pellissippi State on October the 18th and 25th. You can go to com to get more information, to download a syllabus, we also have a tax class, Tax Planning in the New Age, on November the 8th, also in at Pellissippi Hardin Valley. Um, and again, PellissippiTaxPlanning.com. You can find all of my upcoming classes at BroganFinancial.com if you click on classes. We're talking about mental disorders and illnesses. It's become much, much more prevalent as of late with the pandemic. Always been very prevalent. Um, as I said earlier, uh over 50% of us at some point in our lives will deal with some depression or some sort of other mental disorder. We're visiting with PJ Alexander, who is a therapist here in the Knoxville area. Um, PJ, one of the things when we talk about our resources, you know, the pandemic has driven up the need for mental health services, but it has also driven clinical staffers to quit, making it more Mm -hmm. difficult for those who are seeking help here in East Tennessee. What can be done to replace these mental health providers that have quit and are there adequate facilities in our area?
2: You know, I think that um, has been a a problem that of course we're all becoming more aware of. And I think in our area that uh, of course we're fortunate that we do have the university here. And so, you know, we do, um, we know that ongoing education and training and the graduation of those uh, that will be involved in mental health uh, provision of care is is a uh, real asset to our area here. We do have, um, you know, when I was talking earlier about access to mental health services, also has a correlation to the ability to pay. So we do know in our area that we have, um, you know, Helen Ross McNabb. Uh, we have Cherokee mental health systems. And so we do have some you know, some community mental health services. And McNabb is um, actually the agency in our area that that handles a lot of the crisis uh, situations that do come in by having their mobile crisis service and they have a crisis hotline and they have the, you know, the um, uh, emotional support line, the state crisis line that, that we can, lean on them for those kind of services in a crisis situation. And we know that as far as replacing um, those that have uh, left the field, I'm not really sure I have the answer to that either. I think this is going to be hopefully something that maybe will catch up. And um, again, the the provision of care uh, through the, not only the agencies, but the individual therapists, but let's make sure that we also, I think it needs to be brought to the forefront, too, that let's make sure that people can access mental health services through the ability to pay. And I think that's a big issue. That's, I mean, we can't even tackle that one. and But I, that that is also a concern um, for people that don't have the access to mental health services because they don't have the ability to pay. So that also needs to be something that is looked at, and not only for us here locally, but also nationwide.
1: Now, on the insurance side, I mean, federal laws, I believe, correct me if I'm wrong, PJ, but federal laws require insurance companies to cover mental illness and physical health issues equally. Um, Can you talk a little bit about, just briefly about the availability um, and, and what insurance typically does provide for? Because some people may have an assumption that, that, that they're not covered when they may be.
2: It's always a good idea to check that out um, on your insurance plan, but you're right. Most insurance plans do cover mental health uh, services. Uh, TenCare does for the children, of course. So, But we do know that some plans do not. And, and again, I, I don't have a comprehensive um, you know, lists of who might and who, who may not. But I know our office accepts insurance. And so our billing department, you know, they verify benefits before someone even comes so that they know up front that yes, you're going to be covered or yes, you'll have a cold pay, just like you would at a physician's office for your routine, you know, um, you know, healthcare needs. So I, I think it's important that people know that part of their information especially if people are choosing insurance plans make sure that you understand what you're choosing and what kind of things it does cover. I think that's a helpful part of you know self-education in that way as well.
1: Absolutely. Um, PJ in 2020 the city of Knoxville began a program where they paired behavioral health professionals with emergency response services. Is this type of has this been helpful and does it go far
2: enough? Uh, I think the most recent information that has been coming out has been very positive about that. And because I'm not involved in that arm of it, I, I do want to just say I'm, I'm not well-versed in that as far as what the statistics are showing us about. But we, we have um, seen that when that has gone off, that has been helpful from the standpoint that some of these calls that you know that, that our um, you know law enforcement officers do respond to so often do have an individual that's in a mental health crisis. So I do think it's been just a, a, a really positive pairing of the two professionals to work together in that way.
1: PJ, suicide is the Lee is the second leading cause of death among people aged 10 to 34. Let's talk about our young people. One in six U.S. youth, aged six to age between age six and age seventeen, experience a mental health disorder each year. How can we be helping our youth cope with mental problems?
2: We go back to um, the influence that comes. From all of the different systems involved in a young person's life, we you know of course we're going to start with family and 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 how how well is that family, and what kind of things might also be impacting that family you know what kind of issues uh, might be going on in that family, what is the exposure to that child of some of the problems that might be going on and so we look at not only again we're going to look at you know. Are there issues with any kind of, um, you know, food insecurity, financial insecurity, housing insecurity? So we've kind of got, you know, as we'll say often, there all of these issues are so multi-layered. Um, but we also, I like to think that again, if I think we start even something as simple as, you know, are we? Also helping our children learn through school, which a lot of them do learn through their, you know, their uh, health classes. Even some simple things of some good, healthy healthcare care ways that they can take care of themselves or ways to ask for help. Because sometimes, you know, maybe a child doesn't even know how to ask for help. So I like to be hopeful about that, that the more that we pour into children, the more that we help normalize um, that, you know, this, again, this is just a really, it's really just tough. So to walk life on your own. So what can we do to help, you know, fill them with the information that can be helpful for them to recognize when they need to ask for help. That is such a, that, that's probably the bravest thing that anybody ever does, isn't it? To say, can you help me? I need help. That's Absolutely. Insane.
1: Now, you you also work with the American Foundation of Suicide Prevention. Yes. Unfortunately, uh-huh. there are family members that are left behind when someone, oh, uh, yeah. you know, the family that deals with a suicide. What resources are there for those people?
2: Well, in Knoxville, um, in 1996, I started the Knoxville Suicide Griever Support Group. And so we still meet every month in my private practice office on Homburg Drive, and we meet monthly. And I do not charge for that group. That is free. Um, we also have Compass, which is also another support group that is run through the Covenant Health System, and that one also meets uh, once a month. So I think in particular, you know, we have <clears throat> we have two groups in, in Knoxville alone that help with support following a suicide and then another arm of American Foundation of Suicide Prevention that I've been involved in for the last <clears throat> excuse me 15 years is the Out of the Darkness Walk. And so I serve as chairperson for the Out of the Darkness Walk and our walk is actually next Saturday. Saturday October, October 1st, 1st, right? Uh, yes. And it's going to be at the Cove uh, off North Shore Drive. And so through that event we also uh, we view that event as also a day for um, those that are impacted by suicide. We not only do the walk, but we transition into a remembrance time, and we have um, a special uh, a focused attention for just some, some healing components for that day as well.
1: So uh, PJ, if, if people are feeling uh, overwhelmed or showing signs of depression or certainly thoughts of suicide, who should they contact?
2: Well, you know, in, in Tennessee now, we have, uh, well, nationwide, actually, I'm sorry. You can just even call 988, which is our, you know, it's our uh, national uh, helpline. Um, there's also a text that you can do. A lot of times the younger people prefer text. And so that's 741-741. Um, there's also the National Suicide um, Line that's one eight hundred two seven three eight two five five, and then you know we also again here in um, in the Knoxville area that we have uh, Helen Ross McNab's uh, crisis number, which is eight six five five three nine two four zero nine. And and if things are to an extreme point, or a family member, a, a patient, uh, an individual's in a in a hyphen crisis, of course they can call 911 or they can also go to the local emergency room for a mental health assessment.
1: Well PJ thank you so much for being with us this week. A uh, very very important topic and just needs to continue to be uh, in our awareness, we need to, you know, we, we, we've we come a long way from my vantage point with the stigma, but we still have longer to go. Certainly since the pandemic, it has become much more prevalent and something we just got to be very, very aware of. Uh, how can people get hold of you and your services?
2: Um, I'm on um, psychology today. There, It's a listing of all the therapists, so um, they can go on psychology today and just put you know, PJ Alexander, and my my profile comes up, and what kind of things I work in, and all kind of information about the office.
1: Well, PJ, thanks for being with us. Hey, before I let you go, I understand you are a Tennessee fan. Oh, um,
2: absolutely. What's your prediction
1: for What's your prediction for today?
2: Well, of course, it's going to be the balls. I don't know what the score is <laughs> going to be. It's going to be my balls
1: coming back. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, thank you so much for being with us. That's P.J. Alexander. When we come back in our dollars and cents segment, we're going to talk about the emotion of investing and how to, how to avoid emotional mistakes. Emotion is one of the biggest enemies of successful investing. And with what's going on in the markets right now, we're in the midst of a bear market. I think it's important to understand how to manage your emotion. So stay with us. This is more living with Jim Brogan here on News Talk 98.7 WOKI.
0: Welcome back to News Talk 98.7's Brogan Financial Studios, where Jim Brogan is coming to you live with important news and advice to help you achieve your dream retirement. Get ready to learn and live. Here's your host, Jim Brogan.
1: Welcome back to More Living. It's football Saturday with the Gators in town. As you listen to News Talk 98.7 WOKI, it is time for dollars and cents.
0: Want to be sure you are getting the most out of your retirement? For all the years of your retirement? That's the primary goal of More Living with Jim Brogan and our Dollars and Cents segment, where we provide you with an important financial tip that will help positively impact the quality of your life in retirement. And now, here's Jim with this week's Dollars and Cents tip.
1: Emotion is one of the biggest enemies of successful investing. How can we manage our emotions in difficult and choppy markets like we're dealing with right now? You know, a 2018 study published in the Journal of Financial Planning found that investors who use a behavior-modified approach to investing that removed emotion saw returns up to 23% higher over 10 years. Removing emotion means not making decisions based on the emotions we feel when the stock markets are going up and down. And, and there's emotions going up that can be dangerous too, you know, when the market is, is surging. So a couple of, of ways to deal with this. One is to res- resist herd psychology. What is the herd doing? You know, we know we're, fundamentally we should buy low and sell high. But fundamentally, that means buying when the herd is selling and selling when the herd is buying. You know, Warren Buffett is, is famous for his phrase, be fearful when others are greedy and be greedy when others are fearful. So be very careful with the herd psychology. But let's talk about a few emotions. I've got three emotions here that can really in negatively impact sound investing. And then how can you have a plan to deal with them? Of course, one of the biggest is fear. In a study by Dalbar in 2018, the S&P 500 lost 4.4%. But the financial analytics firm found that the average investor in 2018, lost 9.4 in a market that was down 4.4. So the the average investor lost double, and that was because of panic selling. And there's just scores and scores of examples of panic selling. Now then another problem is greed. Too many would-be investors sit on the sidelines in the early stages of market upturns out of fear and then they start seeing dollar signs as they watch the stock market climb. You know, our emotion typically tells us to, to sell when stocks are down and to buy when stocks are up. And that's not what we want to fall into. And then frustration or impatience can also get in the way. It can make us dump fundamentally sound investments just because you get tired of waiting for them to show progress or overreacting It can often rob you of your best investments and ideas. So these are big enemies, especially in choppy markets like this. And so I think, how do you protect yourself against that emotion? One is, understand fundamentally that when we invest at risk in the market, it should be with a long-term view. Now, what does that mean? It's a minimum of a five-year view. So we should be looking at rolling five-year periods, five to seven years even. Now, if you've got a real long-term view like 10 or t- like 20, 20 years or 30 years, you can be a lot more aggressive and just kind of ignore what happens in the short term of the stock market. But as you get re- to closer to retirement, it can be much more uh discerning uh, or concerning. So, understand stocks are always for a 5 to 7 year term. One of the keys to making money is to stay invested. And one of the ways to do that is to have an income plan that allows you to draw your income from investments that are not in the stock market. Uh, And then that doesn't mean you don't do anything. You do want to look for opportunities in choppy markets and also protect yourself from unnecessary risks. And there are ways to do that. But, you know, you really plan for this before it happens. Now, if you haven't planned and you're in the middle of it, there's still a lot you can do. Uh, You just need to sit down and develop a plan. So with a good plan, with both a short and long-term view, you can try to eliminate or mitigate the effect of human emotion on your investment success.
0: That's our Dollars and Cents segment for this week. You can find this week's Dollars and Cents segment and others by visiting BroganFinancial.com.
1: Check us out online. We've just got tons of resources. Go to BroganFinancial.com. You can click on radio and catch all of our podcasts, of our shows, our dollars and cents segments, also my retirement minutes that run every week on this station. You can also find out more about my upcoming classes. We've got a class in October through the through Pellissippi State's Community Services. Also, in November, we have a one-night class on tax planning in the New Age, also at Pellissippi State Hardin Valley. Again, go to roganfinancial.com and click on classes for that thank you to riley from running the board thank you to our guest pj alexander to help us become more aware of mental disorders and thank you to jill for helping produce the show we've discussed mental health because greater mental health provides for more living so you can live the best years of your life your way thank you for tuning in this week go big orange let's beat them gators Have a very blessed weekend. This is News Talk 98.7 WOKI.